You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Hi, and welcome to Radio Therapy. It's a full studio this morning because we are bursting at the seams with enough medical professionals to declare ourselves our very own medical faculty. In fact, we've even got our very own medical students sitting in. From psychiatrist to surgeon to GP to nurse to medical student, we've got all your healthcare education needs covered here at the Triple R Faculty of Medicine. Uh, first up, we will be speaking with Professor Wendy Brown about weight loss surgery. Now, I was going to introduce Wendy by her CV, but we've only got an hour, and her CV would take a lot longer than that. So suffice to say that she is the chair of the Monash University Department of Surgery at the Alfred Hospital, as well as a pretty big week when it comes to surgery on the tummy. I'm keen to know just what this surgery involves and how effective it really is at keeping the weight off. Professor Brown will reveal all. She loves being called Professor Brown. She gets so embarrassed by it. Professor Brown will reveal all the latest evidence and some clinical uh, anecdotes as well. Dr. Nick has brought with him today his minder and medical student, misdiagnosis. Oh, that's one of the nicest sort of uh, eponyms I've I've heard in a while. Now, uh, we workshopped a couple of relevant topics for today's show, Nick and I, and for some reason he liked the idea of brain training. That is, the things you can do to improve your cognitive, i.e. thinking faculties, and stave off dementia. Why he chose that topic when eyeing my greying hair, I have no idea, Nick. Our favourite nurse, EpiPen, was struggling with her chair about 30 seconds ago. Uh, She will be in for some catch-up. That's where we bring you the latest from the medical journals, or the age, whichever is more interesting. Why would you even want to get out of bed? Dr Nick, why would you want to get out of bed this morning at Triple R? Because someone has to come into Triple R and provide the entertainment. Here we are. And that is us. Good morning, misdiagnosis. Good morning. And... EpiPen, hello over there. Morning. You've got your chair right? Oh. Morning, if morning. I, if only this were TV. And uh, good morning to Professor Wendy Brown. Good morning. Okay, now, a couple of weeks ago, EpiPen, uh, we were going to talk about some pretty important uh, data information about adherence to medications. Yes, so recently I went to an infectious diseases conference and they had a really interesting topic or section on um, adherence to medication, but I'll just give you a bit of background. So whenever I hear the word conference, I think junket. <laughs> no, <laughs> I think partying no, into the night. No, it's no, so... No, uh, no infectious <clears throat> diseases um, group is very pure. There's no pharma. <laughs> there's nobody around flogging anything. It's okay. purely academic Good. and... Good to hear. ...stimulating to you guys party hard, surely? Afterwards. Afterwards. Yeah, yeah. So so I um, I was really intrigued by um, one of the things that I heard about, but I'll get to that in a sec. But what it's about, what, what really got my attention was medication non-adherence. And I know Dr mm-hmm. Mal mm-hmm. Um, is one of these people that's quite interested in why mm. we do and don't take medications. And the word itself, is it adherence? Is it compliance? Is it Alignment. alignment. And we're talking about people taking tablets. Correct. Yeah. Correct. It could be even taking having vaccines. Oh, vaccines, yeah. So some yeah. medication. Okay. But there's 40,000 papers in the medical literature addressing this issue about what is it about why people do and don't take medications. That, that is prescribed for them, yeah. Yep, that are prescribed for yeah. them. So there's – and they've, they've estimated that there's $300 million – a billion dollars mm. – Wasted in drug costs and consequently having extra investigations, extra hospital admissions, and it, that's a very expensive thing because people might not adhere to their medications. The, the tablets never work if you don't take them. Correct. So um, people that have to have medications or injections, diabetics, mm-hmm. um, people with psychiatric order, mm-hmm. disorders mm-hmm. need their medication. And if they don't, mm-hmm. um, I was writing this morning with my friendly psychiatrist and he was saying if people don't, so you've got schizophrenia and you don't take your medication, mm-hmm. if you have a psychotic episode, you go back well mm-hmm. before your stable dosing. Mm-hmm. And these are terrible consequences. So, again people um, being hospitalised and having a terrible time. 
And, and for you guys with infectious disease, it would well, be things about sort of, uh, what do you call it, What resistance? That's right. Yeah. So that might be a reason why people don't. So I've got a list of reasons why we might not take our medications. Okay. So you might not pick them up at the chemist. You might not have understood why you needed them. Mm-hmm. They say that on average, this was my literature search, and <laughs> I probably should research. quote the person. So it was Professor Kim Lavoie, who's a PhD associate professor at the University of Quebec, and she looks at monitoring beha- uh, behaviour medicine um, on why people take medications. And there's things like she showed that new tablets can be prescribed to a person within 49 seconds. So how do you, how do you, as, uh, so, so Nick, walk, Dr I'll, Nick might want to comment. So mm. a new medication might be prescribed for a patient and mm. they've prescribed it in 49 seconds. See you later, alligator, done your blood pressure, boom, boom. Mm-hmm. So one of the, being a bit of a devil's advocate here, one of the things I'd say is that I think a lot of non-adherence with medication is actually very well-informed non-adherence because people haven't been properly informed about why they should take the pills in the first place. So they say, I've got no idea why I was given this prescription, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I'm just not going to bother. Mm. That's that's correct. So lack of information, you mean? So, one reason. And, and I, think that, I think particularly in primary care, which is where I work, that's mm-hmm. very common. People mm-hmm. aren't given enough information, so they say, why should I? Mm. Yeah. So premature, um, prematurely, God, that's a tricky prematurely. word. Thank you. Um, stopping your medication, like you might, <clears> the minute you're unwell with an antibiotic, you might start and be really um, adherent. Mm-hmm. But once you start feeling better, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of thing. Okay. Um, emitting dosing, doses, what's an acceptable number of doses that you could um, not take. Mm-hmm. Um, but overall, because I want to get to the crunch of this, overall, um, it's forgetfulness is a strong thing. Really, I would have thought in my particular domain of psychiatry that part of the reason why people don't take it, if they are well informed and they have been uh, prescribed a certain medication for a while, is the meaning of a tablet. You know, so let's just say um, I... uh, uh, In fact, take a a medical uh, issue like uh, hypertension. You know, I actually... You know, I have no uh, effects of hypertension. I have no symptoms. You know, whatever's going to happen to me is going to be, you know, when I'm older, you know, what's the meaning of taking this tablet every day? You know, why should I? And it's it's, it's that kind of psychological effect, which I think is... And not having symptoms. Not having symptoms, sure. That's a strong one. So I'm an asthmatic. So if I don't take my medications, I I get asthma. Mm, mm. So that's... It's a no-brainer, really. But of course, in the field of psychiatry, um, we know that the non-concordance rate with antipsychotics for people who have psychotic illness, particularly schizophrenia, Mm. at 12 months, around about two-thirds of people are not taking the medication as prescribed. And one of the two-thirds, those are the data. And one of the reasons for this is that they have a lot of side effects. So it's not all about just forgetfulness. Uh, there are medications that do some pretty horrible things to you. Oh, absolutely. Side effects, yeah. Especially if you're feeling okay, if you are not symptomatic currently, whatever your diagnosis, psychiatric, non-psychiatric, then you say to yourself, well, I'm getting these side effects. Why should I be taking this thing? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm with you, Epi. I think the nomenclature is so Mm. important here because doctors still talk about compliance, this idea that you're a bad person, you must comply with what you're told to do. I don't even like adherence. Um, because that implies sticking to someone else's rules. Have, have well, th- adherence is what we're taught at medical school these days. So uh, we've, we are taught we're not allowed to use the word compliance because it's just too paternal, but it is it is adherence that we're using. So w- what would you suggest instead of adherence? Alignment. 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 Which Alignment. Is, you know, we are aligned, you and me, the patient, doctor, we are aligned on a treatment plan. And a common or, goal. Well, yes. my word is concordance. That's my favourite. I keep thinking of a plane when you say that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, concordance. Yes, we take off in furious <laughs> agreement. <laughs> so, 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 getting to because I'm going to run out of time. So, at the infectious diseases um, conference, they they talked about um, in clinical trials. It's very important when you make these assumptions about outcomes of medications in a clinical trial. They have to make sure that the patients have taken the the tablets that were in the in the, the trial. Yeah. So there's a whole heap of things. There's, you know, unscrewing tops and counting numbers mm. and all. But one of the things, because we're moving into the app world mm. and IT world. So mm. in India, they mm. say that you can buy an I, a phone for $4 now. Mm. And they've put these apps on to um, phones for people in clinical trials. And go, you must go and have a look at this website. So one of the apps is it's called AI Cure. 
Mm. And what you have to do, so, and the, 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 cl- the clip on for the ad mm. for this app on a phone because they want to make sure you're taking your tablet. So this woman's jogging along a bridge mm. and all of a sudden her phone goes off and she has to stop and then she gets her phone out and she films herself taking the tablet. <laughs> That's, because that's then, hardcore, really? No. The medical selfie. So, but she takes a medical it. Selfie, yeah. But she takes it and then she puts, gets, you know, puts the tablets back in and jogs off again. She hasn't even washed it down with any fluid. Right. But it's all about no. So that information is now fed to the clinical nurses. They analyse that and make sure that people have actually taken their medications. So AIQ. That's full on. Wow. It's full on. And so this is one of the measures that they want to employ so that the assumptions in clinical research is that these the patients have actually taken the tablets and then... And this has been a perennial the, problem. I think even about 20 years ago, you and I were doing a study together um, looking at cirrhosis. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And did wasn't there... What's the thing that makes you pee yellow? Yeah, um, riboflavin. Riboflavin? Was that yeah. right? Yeah. 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 And you could tell people's pee if it was yeah. yellow. You'd and ask they'd bring, them. So these were people with alcoholic liver disease and they'd bring in their tablets and we'd count them every time they attended the clinic. But, you know, it's it's fraught. It's, yeah, they yeah. can tip them down the toilet before they arrive. You can miscount and, them, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that, or they take it just before they come. But you yeah. can see the real dilemma in clinical trials and, and they need to factor in that the patients are actually taking these yeah. tablets. But overall, my bottom line message is education really if the patient gets it and you've spent the time explaining the importance of it and the follow-up so as nick was saying that if there are side effects come back and see me you know this or we'll change it or we'll we'll monitor the change the dose or we'll you know please but you know like for me for an asthmatic just making sure that i understand mm. when's the best time to take my medications and Do you know you, you just gave me a beautiful segue into education there because nice. sitting to your left is uh, somebody in first year medicine second year second year <laughs> Ooh, time oh, flies so misdiagnosis you're going to tell us about some of your experiences Yeah, so I thought I'd start off just by um, relaying a story, something that happened to me about about two weeks ago. I was in the... Uh, I was in the wet lab, which um, is the the, the sort of the room where they keep the bodies, Um, and I was there for an anatomy lab, and I wasn't paying that much attention, and it was a respiratory lab, and I was sort of looking at the lungs and kind of prodding them a little bit, which is what you're supposed to do, and and my anatomy professor realised I wasn't paying attention, and so he sort of handed me this section of lung and said, you know, orient this, but it slipped in his hands and it dropped into this big puddle of formalin and it splashed Mm. all over my lab coat, Mm. and the only thing that I thought was, oh, now I'm going to have to do some washing. And I think it just sort of reminded me of the first time I was ever in an anatomy lab, which was when I was in my undergraduate degree doing anatomy. And I almost passed out and I had to leave the room and I had to sit down and it was a big deal and I was worried and scared and and just how quickly these things normalise. I, see, I was thinking about this. You know, one of the reasons you're doing it, I was terrible in the anatomy lab. I, I just, I couldn't... I've got a surgeon sitting to my left phone, so I'm feeling very embarrassed. But I couldn't visualise arteries, veins. They all look the same. That's one of the reasons well, I become I think, a psychiatrist. I think that's, that's the, the reason why you, you have to do these labs is they do all look the same in the specimens. Well, they do. But I think one of the things also is that it inures you to... Inures? It, it makes you accustomed to body parts. You don't mm. go <gasps> and faint when, you know, somebody shows you a cut on their arm when they come into the ED. It's one of the ways of acclimatising you, I think, to Absolutely. body parts. But not only to, not only to um, body parts but also to variation, I think, in anatomical specimens. And this is something that it's interesting because there is a push towards um, using virtual reality and using uh, technology to do a lot of this stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a lot cheaper. Um, I think at the moment it costs between six dollars to $12,000 per cadaver. And some medical schools have one cadaver per three students and you've got 300 students. It's a lot of money. Um, But I don't think virtual reality can ever take the place of these wet labs just because you can never see the variation. As a surgeon, um, the wet lab doesn't really reflect exactly how things feel in a in a live patient, but it's a very good step in, first of all, respecting the human being mm-hmm. that you're dealing with. It's a really good learning experience that someone has gifted their body to science and you have the privilege as a medical student to be able to learn intimately where every little bit goes. You can read a book, you can look at a computer, you can break it down, but it's not the same as interacting with a patient. 
and I think it's a really important part of any teaching is to have that experience and it'd be a real pity if we um, if people mm. stop mm. having that opportunity just on the basis of cost because in the context of what your education's costing twelve thousand dollars isn't that much but you but you say that um, there are only a handful of bodies for a couple of hundred students do you actually get to dissect yourselves how does it work these days well I think it depends on the medical school that you're attending so for my medical school no we don't get to dissect they're prosected specimens which means that they have been expertly dissected by the anatomist to show us specific sections and there are a couple of reasons for that and um, I know a couple of students who did full body dissections in their undergraduate and a lot of them say that you spend a lot of time just cutting through skin and fat and fascia and layers and then you accidentally slice through the muscle anyway. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the prosected specimens mean that you actually, what you're looking at is the thing you're supposed to be looking at. That being said, I think there's a lot to be said for doing the dissection yourself as well. I think it's about efficiency of time and we can get into loads of discussions about this because you're right, I spent hours and hours, you know, trying to dissect out the radial nerve, you know, and eventually I cut through it because it's so hard to say. It's just so hard to say. Um, I do love your point, Wendy, about the respect for a human body and for the people that have donated this, uh, their, their bodies to to, uh, to medical schools. It, it does teach you a certain amount of respect, I think, and it's and that's so incredibly upheld too in medical school. You know, is, do you have that in, yours, in your school misdiagnosis in terms of did you get a, a talk about the respect for the person that donated their body? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We watched a, a video that I think is from New Zealand because uh, they have one of the, the biggest cultures of sort of um, cadavers and, and dissection in their yeah. medical schools there. And they have this fantastic video from uh, uh, elderly people who were donating their body in the next couple of years and they spoke to camera about why they were doing it. And then you got to watch the medical students then dissect those bodies oh, later. Geez. And it was, it, was, it was a pretty confronting video you know, for a lot of students who'd never been in the wet lab, you're sort of watching these people talk to camera about it and then you're seeing them Being on a table to, to as well. But respect hasn't always been there, has it? I mean, the history of human dissection is littered with some fairly non-respecting activities. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, well, um, I think it, obviously it's very different these days, but... Um, the sort of dissection itself, there was this history of grave robbers um, mm. and the resurrectionists. And this was, we're talking sort of, you know, two, three hundred years ago back in England where, um, oh, who was it? It was... I think it was Burke and Hare were the, were the particular ones. That's who... right, Burke and Hare in the 1800s. And they were innkeepers and um, they realised that it was lucrative to sell these bodies to medical science. Twelve grand, yeah. Well, a little bit. <laughs> Ten gold. <laughs> and a horse. Um, and so they, as innkeepers, they would invite homeless people to come and stay. They'd invite all sorts of people and then they'd kill them. And then they would just donate these bodies to medical science or mm. sell these bodies to medical science and for some reason the, the sort of the, the, the medical science or the men of science of the day turned a blind eye to all these head injuries and just got on with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it wasn't... I thought when... Um, was it Da Vinci who was dissecting bodies? Um, it was frowned upon, so he had to do it in secret because I think the church at that point thought that um, it's not something you should be doing, that nice people do. And, and I think it was Burke and Hare's activities when they finally, finally came to light that led to the, was it the Anatomy Act or the Dissection Act? Yeah, or something that's right, in the, the Anatomy UK? Act of 1832. This is in England? Yes, yes. Do you know just what you were saying before? I, I just, funnily enough, this week I was reading a paper about medical education and, anat and the anatomy room, having no idea this is what you're going to talk about today. And it was about the use of technology and does it replace... Does it um, add to uh, the, the experience of dissecting a cadaver? There's a UK school in uh, a medical school in the UK. Can't remember, was it Bristol? Can't remember. Maybe not. Um, where they had put in the anatomy lab lots of monitors, lots of whiz bang, 3D stuff, and after two years they got rid of it mm. because students and staff preferred to operate on what they would be operating on in the future. You know, you, you can you can either ride a bike to learn to how to ride a bike or you can be shown a video. And I think most people would prefer to get onto the actual bike. Bike rider puts up her hand. <laughs> um, I can remember, and I'm not sure where we're up with this, so um, on um, people that had died and they're in the path labs, that medical students and registrars would come in and practice like taking liver biopsies mm. because they're very they're, I mean, they're not doing so many these days but they they were they've stopped that mm. um actually oh, yeah. you know tra training on yeah. people that have died 
We still do do some training on cadavers, but it's only in very specialised workshops and there has to be in patients that are fully consented for it. There is a history in medicine of us in the past perhaps mm. not being quite so respectful of people's wishes, a bit like the stories of the grave robbers and there was also stories of people in India being killed and yeah. then sort of sent out to medical schools and things. And similarly, when people used to die, we think, well, they're dead now, we'll go and practice doing some liver biopsies. But that's not respectful of the patient's journey and wishes necessarily. So we do still do some training. And there are some great simulators around mm. for surgical training, for example. But again, it's like watching your dad drive. You can watch your dad drive for years, <laughs> but it's not the same as driving yourself. Like what you've a, actually got to go and analogy. learn how to drive. <laughs> And we don't have great haptic feedback yet, so... That means touching. Touching. Yeah. So um, I know flight simulators, for example, pilots practice a lot of scenarios in flight simulators, but they can, they can simulate turbulence, they mm. can simulate the sort of plane kicking back, doing whatever mm. it is planes do when they go wrong. Mm. But in surgery, with the video things, they can show blood coming out of an artery, but they can't give you the feel of what it feels like to pull that artery out and get a clip onto it. Mm. There's, there's, it's a, 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 I guess it's something that we use all our senses. We use our eyes, our ears, our hands, our feel, mm. feeling, and we can't really recreate that in the virtual mm. environment yet. People are trying, but I still think at the end of the day you need that hands-on experience, and I've had similar experiences to what you describe in that article mm. where we've had all these amazing whiz-bang tools, but we just keep going back <laughs> to what we've always done. I was just going to say about the technology. I, what we now do at university is we have an a integrated eight-hour laboratory day that we do once every month or so where we spend half the day in the wet lab looking at the specimen and then we have a few hours looking at pathological specimens and discussing them and a few hours looking at radiolo radiological slides for diagnosis and that kind of thing. And I find, I mean, none of that is using any kind of whiz-bang technology. You've got... Mm. You've got the cadavers there, you've got the pathological specimens and then you've got the radiology and you put it all together and it, it, they kind of reinforce each other and back it up. And, yeah, I find it really, really helpful. Tell me, do you use any of the 3D printed stuff? Like uh, I remember when I was on my sabbatical a couple of years ago in the, looking at medical education and uh, this, uh, I think he was an engineer, he'd taken the bones of the ear, which are, you know, tiny, like grain of sand, tiny, and what he, he'd CAT scanned them and then fed that information into a 3D printer. And, you know, I was holding in my hand like, you know, a 30 centimetre replica of this. And it was all sort of fuzzy and it didn't look like it looked in the books, but you could hold it and move it. And I thought that was really useful, you know, a 3D thing you can hold. Do they do that much, Wendy, nowadays? Yeah, that's more and more prevalent. I know yeah. Monash University has a, sig a significant expertise in this now. And they're also using it now for planning, say, orthopaedic procedures where they'll get the patient's CT scans, yeah. do a 3D print out image of what the hip looks like at the moment and then design a prosthesis that will fit better into the socket than just sort of one off the shelf that drops in. So it's an exciting area of technology that I think is just going to continue to go. And the next step is that they're going to do three, well they're already working on 3D printing where they use that um, scaffold to grow cells into it. And they're thinking they're going to be able to grow organs and organoids and sort of so perhaps you know maybe one day be able to create people's livers or something to put back into them. Wendy what's an organoid? A uh, little tiny organ. So like instead of the whole organ so the whole liver you might just have a I little tiny just bit a of little it. pancreas. Or, <laughs> and sometimes in research like if you want to see if a drug works on colon cancer for example you can get a little bit of colon cancer grow it onto this little 3D scaffold and grow it onto the back of a mouse and they call that an organoid because then you can test drugs on it because it's a, a baby organ. Organoid. So you learn something every day here on uh, Triple R Radiotherapy. Nick's looking askance. I'm thinking of that mouse. <laughs> it's like the mouse with the ear on it. Oh, awful. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Professor Wendy Brown, tell me, bariatric surgery, which is weight loss surgery, why is it called bariatric? Well, bariatric is, a, I believe it's a Greek derivation, so barios means weight, so the bariatric pressure is the, the weight, of the, sorry, the barometric pressure is the weight of the air, right. and iatric in Greek means treatment, so barios and iatric rolls together as treatment of weight. Right, okay, interesting. Now... This is a new form of treatment? Has it been around for very long, doing surgery for weight loss? Well, the first surgery for weight loss really was in the 1950s. Um, someone 
had a great idea that they could treat hypercholesterolemia, so high cholesterol levels, by giving someone an operation where they plugged the small bowel straight into the colon. And they thought that if they bypassed the part of the bowel that absorbed cholesterol, that people Mm -hmm. would drop their cholesterol levels, which they did very, very effectively. But they also lost an enormous amount of weight and died. So it was. (laughs) So the operation was a success. Yeah, success, but the patient died. You know, so you know, not really the greatest surgical (laughs) outcome. But that gave people the idea from that point that maybe if they could fiddle with the gut, that they'd be able to help people who are very overweight lose Mm -hmm. weight. And so probably in the late 1960s, they started doing surgery called a Rui bypass. And in that operation, we divide the bowel and reroute it so that you've only got a very small amount of stomach and the the food that you eat isn't totally absorbed. And that was started in 1967. So it's been around for a while and over the years, people have been fiddling with it, trying to get it right, trying to get the lengths of the bowel right. And then in the 1980s, people started doing some banding and the original bands were these sort of like garbage ties they tied around people's stomachs um, Mm. to try to reduce the size of the stomach and they evolved to bands that are now lined with balloons. They did stomach stapling which have evolved now to what we call a sleeve gastrectomy where we remove about 90% of your stomach. And really in the 90s it took off with keyhole surgery, with laparoscopic surgery. I mean, I think a lot of people will know the term stomach stapling. Can you just tell us, you're not doing that so much anymore, are you? Well, the old-fashioned stomach stapling, no, and that's where we used to just take a stapler and your stomach looks a bit like a kidney bean and we used to just sort of run a stapler along the middle of it so that you only had a little pocket to Mm -hmm. eat into. So you'd fill full quickly. So you'd fill full quickly. Um, But that was kind of has evolved over time and now um, there's three common operations in Australia. The most common one would be a sleeve gastrectomy and in that operation, that kidney bean-shaped stomach, we run a stapler along it to turn it into a skinny tube. Mm -hmm. So we remove about 90% of the stomach. So people have only got about 10% of their normal stomach to eat into. Mm -hmm. And we get rid of part of the stomach that produces one of the hormones that is involved with creating hunger. So for that reason, people don't feel very hungry. Really? What what hormone's that? Ghrelin. Ghrelin. So it's called ghrelin. It's produced by the fundus of the stomach, which is the very top bit of your stomach. Mm -hmm. And it's a, a hormone that makes you feel hungry. So by getting rid of that hormone, it's said to help people feel more satisfied by Mm -hmm. a small meal and not be seeking food as often. And that's called a sleeve gastrectomy. And it's called a sleeve gastrectomy because we turn it in to looking like a skinny sleeve, not because we're fitting a sleeve. Right. And the more common operation you do nowadays is the banding. Is that right? Well, probably the sleeve is more common these days. Yeah. But banding has traditionally been the most common. And that's a little device or a ring that we fit at the top of the stomach. Again, creating a little pouch that holds about 20 to 30 mils of fluid Mm -hmm. at the very top of the stomach. And we can adjust the um, size of the band and how quickly food can Mm -hmm. get through the band by injecting to a little port that's buried under the skin. Um, so that's a very safe procedure. Both the procedures are done keyhole, both of them usually just one or two nights in hospital, and both of them have very, very good results out to about five or six years. We know about the band to about 20 years now. We've got some really good data on it out to 20 years. 20 years? But the sleeve, we've only got data out to about five years, so we don't know that much about it yet. So give us the sort of typical scenario of somebody who comes to you who has tried to lose weight and they can't. What happens from there? So the typical person that I would see, I guess, being a female surgeon, I see a lot of women patients, but actually 70% of people seeking this surgery are women. Uh, So men tend to suffer more from obesity. Women worry more about it, I think. (laughs) And um, often the men send their wives along first to be the sort of guinea pig test case, I think. Um, So typically they'll have a history where they've... um, tried they've gradually gained weight over time particularly around the times of having children and not having lost weight between babies or around the time of menopause they're very typical times for people to put weight on they've tried dieting they've not been successful but only three percent of people are successful with diet at conservative dietary programs so conservative weight loss programs which by which i mean going on a calorie controlled diet and an exercise program most people can lose 10 to 15 kilos but only 3% of them can keep it off into the long term. Are well, you talking five years or so? Um, over, over a five-year period. So most people will maintain the weight loss for about 12 months, then gradually the weight will start to drift back up. So 97% of people regain the weight, which means it's a very normal experience to regain weight. So anyone out there who's had trouble keeping weight off, don't worry, you're very normal. Um, it's the freaks that can keep it off. It's the 3% of people who are obsessive-compulsive that can keep weight off. Then, the characteristics of people who keep weight off are people who weigh themselves every day. 
they have a disaster plan for the days they've put on even half a kilo, meaning that they yeah. severely restrict on those days. They limit themselves to eating 1,200 calories a day, which is three very small meals a day. It's not a lot of food. And they exercise vigorously. Mm. So that's a lot of energy to expend mm. on managing your weight. And most of us have other lives and have children we've got to chase and things we've got to do. And so unless it becomes your life, so people who become like a fitness trainer or involved in the health industry, it's very hard to, to fight it. And the reasons for weight regain are <coughs> complex, but it's because it mainly comes down to the fact that our body whilst fat is unhealthy for us and makes us unwell, in evolutionary terms, it's an energy store. So our body does tend to defend mass, um, their fat mass vigorously. So once you lose weight, you become very hungry because your body wants to replenish mm. those energy stores. So I don't know if you've ever had gastro and lost weight really quickly. Yeah. And when your appetite comes back, it comes back with a vengeance and you just can't stop eating. Mm. That's how people feel all the time when they've lost a large amount of weight. Not that this radio show should, should be about me, but it often is, you know, because I've got these <laughs> questions. But I, I've started recently, probably last, I don't know, two years, exercising really vigorously. And I, I go through the fridge and the cupboard like a vacuum cleaner. I can I cannot stop eating. And yeah. it's, 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 a, it's a major shift for me where I used to not be a big eater at all. So I know that now I can blame it on the ghrelin. But, but you're not overweight. I mean, I think, yeah. I think your yeah. data are so important, mm. Wendy, because there's this huge sort of shame culture out, mm. out there about people being overweight. Mm. Um, but if 97% of people who are overweight simply cannot do it through lifestyle measures... A, what you say is correct, that's normal. Um, And B, it tells us we need to do something Mm. different. Mm. Uh, As GPs, we know we go on and on and on at people about lifestyle change. And it is sometimes a bit excruciating because six, 12 months later, very little seems to have changed. And there's this concern out there, I think, in society that managing obesity should be around behaviour and why are we doing operations. But your data are telling us why we should be doing operations. So tell us what the role then of surgery is to help people with weight problems. So the role of surgery is it kind of evens the playing field. So each one of those operations we do, the primary aim of them is to reduce people's hunger so that they feel satisfied by those three little meals a day. So they can live on 1,200 calories a day. So the sleeve gastrectomy, as I was saying, we remove part of the stomach that produces hormones that create hunger. We also, and it's also a very skinny little tube, so they physically can't eat very much. With the gastric band, it sits at the top of the stomach and that's an area rich in nerves that feed back to the areas of the brain that trigger the feeling of fullness, Mm -hmm. the hypothalamus. Mm -hmm. So um, all of the aims of these surgeries is not, We used to think they were physically restricting the patients, but now what we understand is that we're manipulating the body's physiology to induce that sensation of satiation and prolonged satiety. And the role, of, look, the role of surgery is that for people who are really struggling, we can help them lose a substantial amount of weight and improve their health. And we really have to be start, I think, focusing on health-based goals rather than weight-based goals. So if someone comes to me and they've got diabetes and sleep apnea, which typically they would, mm. and at the Alfred Hospital where I work, the mean BMI of patients we see is 50. And on average, they've got at least four diseases that could be reversed with weight loss alone. And that could be diabetes, sleep apnea, high blood pressure, cholesterol, liver disease, infertility, lots of different things. There's at least 90 diseases now that we attribute directly or indirectly to obesity. And if we can help those people lose weight and keep the weight off, mm. we can really help them improve their their, um, their health. Now, we may not make them Elle McPherson. Mm. We, won't, we don't make too many people come down to a perfect in inverted commas I'm doing, Mm. Um, BMI. I forgot Mm. it was radio, people can't see. Um, So we don't make too many people into a normal BMI range. We bring them down from a BMI of 50 to a BMI of maybe 38 or 35. So they're still, in medical terms, obese, but they're a much healthier obese person. I mean, how how do you stop it from going too far? Like, you know, people lose weight and they get to a particular weight, do you then reverse the surgery or does the body accommodate? What happens? The body's a, the body's a fabulous thing. You know, yeah. the body tends to accommodate most things and it's very rare for us to make someone underweight. Right. It's um, That would be very uncommon. And if someone does become underweight, then we have to look at reversing the procedure or doing another procedure. With the gastric band, it's very simple. We just take the fluid yeah, out of the yeah. band. With the sleeve, it's a little bit harder. Um, but it is very uncommon for people to, to really overshoot. 
also um, side effects of any of the operations. So in the previous ones, um, there was that thing called dumping syndrome. Is that is that mm. something that's come up? For dumping it? syndrome. What's that? Um, so dumping syndrome is more common with the ones where we route the bowel, a mm-hmm. little bit with the sleeve. It means the food's rushing through the stomach too quickly mm-hmm. and it hits the part of the bowel that stimulates the pancreas, which is the organ that produces um, insulin. Mm-hmm. And insulin's what diabetics take to lower their mm-hmm. blood sugar. And because the insulin's getting overstimulated, it produces too much insulin and your blood sugar drops very quickly ah, right. and you get very, you feel very sweaty and very... Become hypo. Uh, hypo. You yeah. get a hypo. And on top of that, because there's more sugar in the bowel, it sucks all the fluid into the bowel. So there's a sort of osmolar effect where the fluid is sort of sucked into the bowel and then it has to get out so it rushes out and you get diarrhoea. So it's a very unpleasant thing and it tends to happen when people eat sugary foods. Right. And so it becomes a sort of detractor so people don't eat sugary foods because they don't want that dumping syndrome. Right. So it's a conditioned response. I know if I have this particular type of high caloric food or yeah. sugary food, this will happen. But you're saying this doesn't happen so much anymore with this type of syndrome? Uh, not so much with the gastric banding in the sleeve. It was more when we did more aggressive procedures where yeah. we routed the bowel. So what are the problems with it? It sounds like the ideal solution, pop into the Alfred, a couple of days in hospital, bang, my weight, problem solved. Well, we don't have the manpower to... 28% of the population are now obese and at least sort of 10% of the... Five, somewhere between 5 and 10% of the population are heading towards the more severe um, forms of obesity. So surgery isn't a population-level treatment. But we need to learn from surgery what we're doing and what's happening with the hormones so that we can maybe come up with a drug therapy or another therapy or a genetic therapy, whatever it might be, That's that, that is more be, But there must be based. problems with the surgery. Oh, it can't definitely. all be good news. What, no, look, that... There's every yin, there's a yang. There's always a side effect with everything. And so with the gastric band, the main issue is it's a device, so it's a foreign body, so it's like a pacemaker or a hip. Over time, they wear out. They can slip. They can people can learn to eat around it. So if you don't have a really good support system in place, well, you're providing all the things that people in primary care who treat chronic diseases know are important. So reinforcement of good behaviour, appropriate goal setting advice on nutrition and exercise then people can slide back into their old habits or can um, eat around it and with the sleeve gastrectomy there's the upfront risks of surgery obviously and if the staples don't take they can end, people can have a leak mm. and can end up being very sick and down the track nutritionally because we're getting rid of a lot of the stomach there can be problems with B12 the B group vitamins in particular oh, right. iron calcium and um, vitamin D I love what you said before I, I I'll go back and listen to the podcast, but um, it was this is not a population-based treatment because I think one of the criticisms that sort of came into my head is, well, 28% of the population in, is obese. You can't do operations on everybody, so, you know, uh, so how do you kind of justify it? But what you're saying is we can learn from this that perhaps we can have a population-based treatment with uh, grel- you know, an anti-ghrelin drug. I, I mean, are there anti-ghrelin drugs? Well, they tried anti-ghrelin drugs, but ghrelin also feeds into the um, hypothalamus, which is kind of the happiness centre, the happiness centre <laughs> in the brain. You don't want to mess with that. <laughs> and, um, and there was an excess of suicides. And so, really? Yeah, so it, it really, it's like the can- anti-cannabinoids, because you know how people get the munchies when they smoke cannabis? Right. So people thought, oh, well, if we block the cannabis receptors, maybe it'll block people's appetites, which it did, but also made them profoundly unhappy happy really so every Jeez. so there, but there's some really great work going on i'm particularly involved i guess with guys at monash university yeah. so michael cowley's doing drug discovery mm-hmm. um brian oldfield as well matt watt and they we've created models of bariatric surgery plus they're learning from our patients some mm-hmm. of our patients are generous enough to agree to be in some trials mm-hmm. where we take their blood and their fat and little bits of their liver and we can learn from what their their hormonal milieu or what their mm-hmm what things are going on in their bodies so that we can, hopefully these more clever people than me, can come up with other treatments. Do you know what I, I know there's lot, everybody's got questions here, but that, what you just said there about ghrelin just fascinated me because I would have thought, okay, ghrelin stimulates appetite, block ghrelin, of course. But it's far more complicated because, as you said, it, that has profound effects on other parts of the body and your, and your mood and so forth. And that's so, a, everything's got a yang, so yeah. everything we do has a reaction. Prefer- has a reaction. Yeah. Well, I was just wondering because you've got ghrelin, which is the um, hunger hormone. What about leptin, which is our satiety hormone? Have they tried doing any drug trials with that? Yeah, the, I think there has been many trials in leptin. The only group that leptin, for some reason, seems to work are people who are leptin deficient. 
So there's some nice um, studies that Joe Poretta um, drove on a family that were actually deficient in leptin. And when they replaced the leptin, these and these these were little children that were already weighing 100 kilos mm. when they were sort of eight years old, you know, really um, struggling. And when they gave them leptin, they were able to lose weight. But when they've tried it, and everyone thought when they first discovered leptin, because it was one of the first ones that was discovered, they thought, oh, this is the solution. Mm. We'll be able to give everyone leptin. But it just didn't work because I guess the body, putting it to a super normal concentration alone didn't work. And again, it can, we always think very simplistically but at the end of the day, we're a very complex organism. There's lots of different pathways working and we have to work on all those pathways. And I think in some ways that's why obesity is the ideal multidisciplinary um, disease. It's got a real biological basis, psychological basis and social basis. Mm. And unless we address all three, we're not going to have a real solution. So just two quick ones. Um, Wendy, you mentioned BMI, which you might like to talk about again um how you work out a bmi but just simply what would be the what's the biggest uh, or the heaviest person that you've ever seen in your clinic and what's the cost of this sort of uh, these operations sorry the bmi is your body mass index and it's a sort of crude way we measure obesity and it's your weight in kilograms divided by your height in meters squared and a normal bmi is 20 to 25 Overweight is 25 to 30 and obese is greater than 30. But what we call morbidly obese or very very severely obese is a BMI of greater than 40. And that's when we know that the health risks... So someone with a BMI of 40 compared to someone of the same age of a normal weight is three and a half times more likely to die. Mm. So that's why it's called morbid obesity because mm. it's a real effect on health. Mm. The heaviest person I've dealt with is 400 kilos. So his BMI, I think, was 105. Mm. Um, and we treated him by helping him to um, lose weight prior to surgery and then we did the surgery. It must have been difficult surgery too in somebody who's so overweight. Um, it was more technically difficult just because he was large and I'm not that tall. Mm. So I had to stand on a stool and we had to have, um, you know, have two operating beds and things. But How did he go? He, he did well, yeah, yeah, he did well. True. So, um, and you asked about and the, the cost. costs. Yeah. So in the public system, obviously, it's covered. Um, the, and in Victoria, we're quite lucky. There's the Alfred, the Austin, um, Box Hill, um, Hamilton out in the regional Victoria that are doing quite a large number of procedures. Um, in private, um, if you're paying cash pay for a band, it's around about $12,000. Mm -hmm. If you've got private insurance, the out-of-pocket will just depend on who your surgeon is. Okay. And sleeves, very similar. Wendy Brown, thank you so much for coming in. We're going to ask you to stay so you can ask Dr Nick some curly questions, like the same ones he asked you, about cognitive training. And maybe you can test his cognition as well. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia. Hey, Dr Nick, I would like you to count back from 100 by sevens. Oh. Now... 93, 86, 79, 72, 65, Fantastic. 58, Five. Actually, you can stop now. Now you're just showing off. God, that's a bit <laughs> that's, rough, isn't it? I haven't, even, I haven't even had a coffee. See, I just sprang that in. That's called Ooh. serial sevens, and it's part yeah. of the Falstein mental state test that we apply to patients to test their cognition, which you're about to tell us about. Well, I'm, I'm very interested in memory, and I think all of us, as we get a little older, get a little more interested <laughs> in, in memory. And, uh, I mean, hardly a day seems to go by without some article coming out about memory. A couple of weeks ago, uh, there's the thing about this woman who's come over from Canada, I think it was Barbara Arrowsmith-Young, talking about how she's doing brain training for people with learning difficulties and um, wonderful results by doing very complex and repetitive tasks. It sounds absolutely wonderful and then you read today in the age about um, research around uh, Alzheimer's and um, how proteins are accumulating and we have this drainage system and maybe if we can prom promote the drainage system we'll have less difficulty with Alzheimer's. It's, it's one of these things that it just comes up all the time about memory and as a, as a GP out in primary care land and as someone <clears throat> getting a little older himself, I'm very interested in what can we ordinary people do? I'm not so interested in the sort of complex research and, and the um, detail of 12 hours a day programs. And this goes back to a, a, a guy I met when I arrived in Australia. I, used, I was a squash player. I played reasonable squash when I was in the UK. And it used to happen, people say, oh, you play squash, you've got to have a game with such and such. And someone said, oh, you've got to have a game with Jake. Um, we'll call him Jake. 
because that's his name. Um, and, um, and Jake turned up for a game of squash, and Jake only had one arm. And I said, oh, what happened? He said, oh, you know, the other one got chopped off in the motorboat propeller. And I said, oh, shit, just well, it wasn't your good arm. He said, it was. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God, I'm playing some one-armed manky squash. And uh, so Jake and I got on court, and he cleaned me up. Mm. And I was so impressed by this. He was this guy playing this difficult sport with his wrong arm uh, and playing it extremely well. And I thought, if I tried to do this with my left arm, mm. I couldn't even hit the ball, mm. which I tried, and indeed I couldn't hit the ball. But it made me think about the plasticity of our brain, and we're, we're really interested, in, and this is going back 20 years ago when the term neuroplasticity wasn't even widely known about. Mm. But when I was a medical student, uh, I was taught that uh, by the time you got to 25, your brain was a fixed entity, nothing could change, any damage to it was permanent, there was no chance of any recovery. Like so much that I was taught as a medical student, it turned out to be mm. completely wrong. Because we now know that the brain, it doesn't matter whether you're 25 or 75, has great capacity for change and regeneration. Tell me, when you were in those medical school lectures, because I was in the same ones, maybe five years later, um, it didn't make sense to me when they said that because then what's the point of rehab? I, I just mean, believed every word I was told. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> clearly. I mean, a lot of the stuff that we were told in medical school and misdiagnosis is sitting in front of us is just gumph. And it's, it's because we just don't know yet and we're kind of trying to fill in the holes with conjecture. Correct. And that would, that, I mean, what you're saying to me really stands out because I remember hearing this in a lecture theatre and I remember thinking, well, no, because then all these people I know have had rehab, what's the use of it then? I was taught at Cambridge University that gender identity was entirely societally determined, had nothing to do with mm. chromosomes or hormones. Mm, Turned go. out not to be entirely <laughs> true, that yeah. one, but very, very intelligent professor taught us that. Anyway, coming back to the brain side of things, so I got very interested in how Jake had managed to become this really excellent single-handed but wrong-handed squash player, and I was very... Um, concerned about my inability to do a similar thing. So I started thinking about, well, what can we ordinary people do? Because I see the brain as this jungle that we make paths through. And as we get older, the jungle is sort of growing more and more, trying to cover up the paths. And our job is to keep those different paths open. And the danger, I believe, this is Carr's personal hypothesis, is that if we keep following the same track all the time, the things that are comfortable, it allows all the other little side paths just to get grown over, taken over by the jungle. Oh, nice. And increasingly, nice. we need to move down those side paths to keep them open and to stop the jungle taking over. And so one of the things I believe that we should be doing is we should be making our brains uncomfortable by doing things that it doesn't want to do. And the left-right hand, th hand thing, I think, is one of them. So when I got my very first computer with a mouse, I put the mouse on the left-hand side. And I hated it because I found it really hard to mouse with the left hand. But 20 years later, I mouse much better with my left hand than with my right hand. All of this was inspired by this man, Jake. Um, so, for instance, when you brush your teeth, if you're right-handed, you, Wendy, which, which hand do you use to brush your teeth? Right. Yeah. Have you ever tried brushing your teeth with your left hand? Oh, no. I don't like operating with my left hand either. <laughs> so the first time I tried brushing the teeth with my left hand, I think I spent more time with the toothbrush up my nose than I did <laughs> in my mouth. However, now I always brush my teeth with my left hand. And It'd I do be it great fun to live with, really. <laughs> I can imagine your wife sort of going to the bathroom, up, you know, wiping the spray off the mirror. Misdiagnosis has given me one of those looks. <laughs> well, um... Because I was also wondering if you've been brushing your teeth with your left hand for so long, surely that's just the same path that you're walking down. <laughs> and I think that's a very important point because I think once you've opened Try up... and toes. So I think there's a point to keeping that path open. But I think it's, it's one of these things that we should just think about. So when I go on my visits with my little doctor's bag wandering around the streets, I carry the bag in my left hand because mm. I naturally want to carry it in the right hand. I think we should be trying to make our brains do things they don't want to. And there's evidence around this. I mean, people will know the name of Norman Doidge, mm. who wrote The Brain That Changes Itself. Mm. And uh, he talks about lots of different domains. He talks about things like numbers and mathematics. He talks about music. He talks about dance and Dancing movement. Dancing supposed to be yep. good, yeah. Um, and uh, languages, that sort of thing. Now, if you speak very good French and you go to more French classes, I'm with you, Miss D. I think all you're doing is keeping the same path open. Mm. Probably you should go and learn a complete 
completely different type of language like Chinese or something. Uh, people who don't play a musical instrument probably trying to start a musical instrument is very good. But if you already play very good piano, continuing to do so probably doesn't keep those sideways paths open. See, I knew there was a reason you and I were friends. I mean, there's loads of reasons, but this is one of them. It's making doing things that your brain is uncomfortable with. I'm not sure this kind of falls into what you're talking about, but whenever I go to a restaurant, I never order the same thing twice because I figure I've already ordered it. And I just sort of throw <laughs> the dice, sort of, you know, mentally, and just order something that I'd... Like the other day I had fried fish head. It was terrible, right? <laughs> but at least I'm trying different things, you know? Don't you think there's something good about repetition and about becoming a master at something? I'm not for a moment suggesting that we should stop doing things that we're very good at. What I'm suggesting is, I think, particularly as we age, we need to try and push our brains and our bodies into territories that are also uncomfortable. Because I, I think that's where... What are you guffawing about? <laughs> I'm still a whole of mental images of me being very uncomfortable in some yoga positions. But, <laughs> but I think that's probably a very good, yeah. a, a very good example. Um, doing things which physically we find difficult. To, I mean, the evidence suggests that if you're not a mover, learning to dance the tango yes. through the bottom over is probably very good for keeping that brain active. Well, that's why crossword puzzles as well are supposed to be very good for staving off dementia because it's it's a new thing each time. It's not the same old thing. Um, and don't forget that good old thing from the neuropsychologist exercise. Oh, so opening up your blood vessels, getting lots of nice oxygen into your brain. Mm. There's there's a few tricks, but that's also a really good one apart from languages and crosswords. Yeah, so I think you're absolutely right. Exercise, uh, I mean, exercise really is good for absolutely everything. everything. But when you talk about... pill. You see, crossword puzzles are an excellent example because I come... I've, uh, it was a family tradition. We always did cryptic crosswords, so I've always done them. I'm not sure that that's going to help my brain any further I'll keep doing them but lots of people are like oh I can't do cryptic crosswords much too hard. well you're the kind of person who should start yeah. because they're really hard never done one people say Sudoku you know well Sudoku fine it's a bit formulaic once you've learned how to do it then you can do Sudoku but if you've never done one yeah do it because it's about numbers so I think a similar thing with the left right handed thing when I come across a column of figures I don't use a calculator I try and do it mm, paper so do pen I. in my head and it's always right I don't like it <laughs> I don't like doing it but that's the point yeah. I think one of the things we one of the things we're much better at when we're younger is rote learning because yeah. we do a lot of it at school we don't do it as adults. Uh, I sometimes have to try and learn a bit of Shakespeare for talks and so on. And, oh, it's excruciating how hard it is to do. I should probably try and do that more often. I think it's very good for keeping that pathway open. So it's about novel experiences as well, not just about... I mean, I, I like the idea of, you know, making your brain plastic or using its plasticity by having novel experiences, but also novel experiences are joyful. I mean, they're not always bloody joyful, but they can be joyful. And I think as we get older, we tend to become more and more kind of narrow in our field of experiences. And that isn't a good thing, misdiagnosis. So uh, one of the reasons that Norman George says that novel experiences are joyful is because because they're uncharted territory, they actually release more dopamine and serotonin. So they actually are more joyful if you're doing something new. Everything comes back to dopamine and serotonin. See, isn't that lovely? And that's, that's my point. I'm not so interested <laughs> in the detailed research. I'm saying these things are simple, they're cheap, they're safe, and they should be fun. So why wouldn't we do it to try and keep those brains happening? And what a great note to end on. It's been a fantastic radiotherapy this morning. We have uh, had... Um, uh, Dr Nick tell us to do something different do something different every day I reckon you know within the bounds of being risk free and you know all that sort of stuff um, thank you Professor Wendy Brown for coming in and telling us about bariatric surgery I learnt so much this morning EpiPen you, me, we are aligned. <laughs> and uh, misdiagnosis, you've got to come back on the show because um, hearing about your medical ex school experiences is, is uh, fondly um, kindling some of my experiences, but also telling us what's different now in the School of Medicine and Training. In about three seconds' time, we're going to hand you over to the great folks at uh, Einstein and Gogo. They, they're champion at the bit. They're looking at me now. We'll catch up with you next week for some more radiotherapy. Until then, we'll see you later. Oh, no, no, that's the wrong button. Sorry, live radio. Hello, kitties. This is Alice Cooper on 102.7 FM, Triple R. You better listen because I know where you live. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. 
For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au. 